0: Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the incredible gift of Jesus, your Son, through whom we have peace with you, uh, that he has paid it all, that he has washed away all of our sin through uh, the all-sufficient blood that he shed on the cross. And we thank you for the grace that we stand in um, because of him, the hope that we have um, of the glory of God that is here now and that is coming. We thank you that Jesus is coming to set up his kingdom on this earth and to reign supreme for all of eternity God, we uh, we just rejoice at the gift of your salvation through Jesus. God, I pray for Jason right now as he comes to share your word that you would just speak powerfully through him. Um, that we would all have uh, ears to hear and hearts that are uh, soft before you, God. And, uh, Lord, we just want to hear from you today. God, we want to know you better. Um, so come, Lord, we invite your presence here. Um In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Good morning. I will apologize to you in advance. I am still getting over the flu, and I will do my utmost not to cough, but I... I recall Paul saying somewhere that he preached the gospel with a bodily ailment. So I will do the same. Please pray with me again. Father God, everlasting Father, you who created all things, you for whom and through whom and to whom all things exist. God, we bless your name today. Lord, as we look in your word, God, as I exalt over it, Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts in such a way, God, that your fire would fall down, that you would rend the heavens, that you would be in this place, and that you would do wondrous things. God, we we pray that you would show your people afresh this morning, God, the joy that we have in you, and what glorious inheritance we have in Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, today, as we continue to celebrate Advent in the days and weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to talk about the peace of God through Jesus Christ. When Josh first informed me of our, our plans to celebrate Advent this year as a church and asked if I would preach about peace, I was excited. I just took it as an open ended invitation to just sing about the glory of the gospel in whatever way God put on my heart. Enough can never be said. And we can never sing too much about the peace of God that we have through Jesus Christ. In Philippians 4.7, the Apostle Paul refers to the peace of God as surpassing all understanding. That's how great the peace of God is. The Apostle himself cannot even comprehend it. He says it's beyond comprehension. The peace that we have with God in Christ is so profound and so amazing that it cannot be fully understood or articulated. And to be able to acknowledge that the peace of God can never be fully articulated gives me great comfort and confidence as I set out to preach about it this morning. I'm faced with the task of teaching about something that is so great that I can't even wrap my mind around it, and Scripture allows me to simply confess that up front. I get to preach about something so awesome that the Bible itself says it can't be fully preached about. I have this glorious position as a pastor or preacher, excuse me, that I can just stand here and rejoice in my ignorance today before you and just tell you over and over again that the subject matter of this message is so good that it's beyond my ability to begin to tell you how good it is. I cannot grasp the greatness of this piece. It's too big for me and it's too big for you. I won't be able to fully understand it. This side of eternity, neither will you. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, right now we only know in part. Right now we see dimly, as in a mirror. Right now we see partially, but one day we will know in full. But while we cannot know it fully right now, the peace of God is something we can know and experience here and now. It's something that we presently possess because of what Christ has accomplished. In John 14, 27, Jesus told his disciples before he was betrayed, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. We have the peace of Christ because he gave it to us. We have it right now. When I originally sat down to prepare this sermon, I was sure that I wanted to preach about the peace of God in Romans 5, 1 and 2. This text has gripped me as one of the most Glorious statements about the peace of God in the scriptures. And not only that, but it, it, it very succinctly just states the theology of the gospel in such, a, just, such a, just a short way. And I figured if I was free to choose my own text, that this was the text that I would preach the peace of God from. But, as I thought more and more about the peace of God and about this text, I realized that there's so much in this text that I cannot possibly do it justice in this sermon. And instead, I felt the Spirit of God tugging me to to, to kind of take a different direction. So today, we're going to barely scratch the surface in this text. We're going to deal with one phrase from it. And I just want to sing over this phrase. That's my goal. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? We have it.
0: I'm not in any way going to
1: minimize the first phrase in this verse that we've been justified by faith. Absolutely, amen. Amen. But I cannot possibly scratch everything that I want to scratch in this message. I just want to sing today, We Have the Peace of God. Today, I don't really have a list of points or questions. This will pretty much be a one-point message. What I have is more of a thesis statement that I'm just going to throw out there, and then I'm going to go get it in the Scriptures. That's what we're going to do. I just want to go into the Scriptures today in such a way I pray that by the grace of God, our hearts would be stirred afresh this morning to celebrate the peace that we have in God in Christ Jesus. For some, what I discuss today may feel like old news. You've heard these things before. I hope you've heard them before. But I tell you, the gospel is never old news to those who by its power are being made new. Whether you've heard it a thousand times or the first time, the gospel of the glory of Christ is the most relevant and exciting news you will ever hear. Your life is about how you respond to the news of the gospel. You were created to respond to the gospel. So I invite everyone to simply revel in these truths with me this morning. If you don't take any notes, I won't be in the least bit offended, but I pray you leave here this morning with singing in your hearts, with your faith strengthened. So here we go. Here's my... Wonderful thesis statement. The sovereignly ordained birth of Jesus Christ is exalted in the scriptures as the most joyful event in the history of God's creation. We're going to start in Genesis this morning because the first implication we must come to grips with before we can ever begin to know or appreciate the peace that we have with God through Christ is the fact that before Christ, we didn't have it. And we desperately needed it. So here we go, starting at creation. Man and woman were created, and they were without sin in the garden. Before the fall, we're told in Genesis 1.31 that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. We are given the picture in Genesis 3.8 that God himself even walked in the garden. He spent time there. God was in his garden, had fellowship with his creation. There was peace with God. But it was short-lived. Before long, the serpent came to the woman, and the word of God was called into question. The woman was deceived. She ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the man followed her. Sin was born into the world. Peace with God was destroyed. God had given Adam a single command and warned him of the consequence for breaking it. God had blessed Adam freely by giving him the fruit of every tree in the garden for food, all but this one tree. And God warned him, In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 2.17 And sure enough, Adam's sin ushered in the promised curse. The human race was cursed that day. God cursed the woman and told her that her pain in childbearing would be multiplied. In pain, she would bring children into the world. Her desire would be for her husband who would rule over her. God cursed the man for listening to the voice of his wife and disregarding the command of the Lord, for failing to uphold the command of the Lord as holy. And because of the man, the ground itself was cursed. And it would now be in pain that man would eat of the produce of the ground. The Lord said, Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and dust you shall return or to dust you shall return that was the curse all of mankind was now doomed to live out their days on this earth in painful toil until the day that their weak flesh returned to the ground peace and fellowship with god were traded for pain and death God's free bounty in the garden traded for toilsome labor and destruction. From this day on, the reality that the human race would grow accustomed to would be the anguish of sin and death. Now here we are, not three chapters into the history of creation, and we have a terribly bleak picture for mankind. Already this seems like a very hopeless existence. But there was another curse given that day. And in this curse shined the one glimmer of hope for mankind. Genesis three fourteen and 15. Mark it well, Christian. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts in the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, hear that. He shall bruise your head. Who is he in this verse? The offspring of the woman. But whose head would be bruised? Would it be the offspring of the serpent? No, the serpent himself. The offspring of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. The one who is the devil, the one who we are told in John eight forty four 44, has been a liar and a murderer since the beginning. Here in the curse spoken over the serpent, we are given the promise of redemption. That ancient snake would one day be struck down, and all he would be able to do is wound the heel of the one who would conquer him. A seed of the woman would be victorious over him. And from this point on, mankind would now be waiting for the promised seed of the woman. The one who would bring mankind relief from the pain and toil and death that was ushered in by sin. The one who would redeem us from the curse and restore us to the peace of God. That's the peace we're talking about this morning. That is the peace that we desperately need. More than the air you breathe, you need this peace. Hear me this morning. Without this peace, you are dead in your chair. You're a sinner. You've offended the holy king of creation. You are cursed, doomed to live a hopeless existence. And more than that, you are judged. For not only will your mortal body perish into the earth, but awaiting your soul is the righteous eternal wrath of the Lord, whom you have scorned by your evil deeds. What could man do from this point but wait for the promised seed? He was fallen. Nothing could be done to undo what had happened. Eden was lost, and there was no promise given to man by which he might be saved except for the promised seed of the woman. Not by the strength or the righteousness of man would mankind be saved, but only by faith in the one whom God promised to bring forth for salvation. After Adam and Eve were driven from the garden, sin abounded more and more. Eve gave birth to Cain and Abel. And we don't even make it past the second generation of man before we see jealousy and hatred and murder come into practice. Cain murdered righteous Abel, and God cursed Cain to become a wanderer on the earth. Cain headed east of Eden to wander, but sin only continued in his exile. He defied the word of the Lord and became a settler in the land where he was to be a wanderer. He built a city, and sin and violence continued through generations. Now, with Abel dead and sin alive and well in the line of Cain, things began to look as bleak as they could. But the sovereign purposes of God cannot be stopped. God gave Eve another son, and she called his name Seth, saying, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Now, I want you to hear something there. I bring that up this morning. You know, this might sound like we're doing a survey through Genesis, and in a way we are, but I want you to hear something here. I want you to continue thinking back to Genesis 3.15, to that curse given to the serpent. What I hear in Eve's voice here, and you may read this differently, I hear the voice of a woman who is now looking for the promised seed. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. I can just hear her heart saying, God, I thought Abel was the promised offspring. I thought he was the one that you spoke of. I thought he would be the one to crush the head of the serpent. He found favor in your eyes. But now he's dead. He's been strut down by his brother in this vile sin that my husband and I brought into the earth. God, relieve me from my shame. Surely it must be Seth. But it would become clear it was not Seth. At least not Seth himself. Little is said of Seth in the book of Genesis, but Seth went on to Father Enosh. And in Genesis 4.26, we are told that at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now think about that. People began to call upon the name of the Lord. After years of sulking in the darkness of sin, there arose men and women who were beginning to have their hearts awakened by God to see their need for redemption, to look to the promised seed. Now you may ask, well, how do we connect Genesis 4.26, where it says people began to call upon the name of the Lord with the promised offspring of Genesis 3.15? Is it, is it possible that they just began calling upon God, asking him to give him stuff? Is it just generically calling upon the name of the Lord? I don't, I don't think so. And I draw that connection out of Genesis 5.29. Now listen to this. Here we see Lamech, who came later in the line of sin. He gives his newborn son a very remarkable name. Genesis 5.29. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying this, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Can you feel the longing and anticipation that must have been in Lamech's heart that he would give his son such a name? This one shall bring us relief. This one shall be the one who breaks the curse of sin. We're not told in the scriptures that God told Lamech to give this name to his son, but it's obvious that God had put it in his heart to do so. It's one, one of my favorite just things to see in the scripture of the sovereignty of God is just to see how he puts things into the hearts of men for his sovereign purposes. And we see it, we see it in our lives as well if we, if we pray that God gives us eyes to see it. But to see the Lord put things into the hearts of men is just amazing. This was a glorious prophecy in this name. But just as Seth was not the promised offspring, neither was Noah. Noah would go on through the flood to be commissioned as a kind of new Adam. But it would become clear that he was not himself the promised offspring. He was not what, what Paul later calls the last Adam. And when we look to Noah's sons, it starts to look like maybe it's Shem. But it's not Shem. And then we come down a few generations. In the line of Shem, we come to Abram. God makes a profound promise to Abram. And while it becomes clear that the seed is not Abram, oh boy, we can almost taste the redemption at this point. The promised seed is almost here. The Lord promises Abram in Genesis 22, 18, and in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed. We're getting closer from Adam to Noah and now to Abram. It's closer and closer. The Lord has not forsaken his promise. And then Ishmael is born. But it will not be Ishmael, the son of Hagar, who would carry forward the promised seed. It's Isaac, the seed of promise. And then to Isaac are born the twin brothers, Esau and Jacob. But though Esau be the older, the child of promise is shown to be Jacob. And then from Jacob's loins come the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's a lot of sons to choose from. From among these, who would be the promised seed? For a while... It starts to look like maybe it's Joseph. Could he be the seed? Righteous Joseph who, who endured such suffering at the hands of his brothers? No. It is not Joseph. The Lord makes his promised one known. He who declares the end from the beginning is watching over his word to perform it. It would be Judah. Judah, the one who had the bright idea of selling his brother into slavery in Genesis 37. That would be the one from whom would come the promised offspring. God makes it clear again and again that it will not be by human counsel or effort or reasoning that the promised seed shall arise, but by his own eternal counsel and the power of his will. Listen to this amazing prophecy that Jacob spoke over his sons when he was near death in Genesis 49 10. I might tear up just reading this. It's that awesome to me. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now that name Shiloh is a remarkable name. It's it's translated elsewhere to mean peace or tranquility or rest, which is what we're looking for, absolutely. But there's another translation here that is just so filled with glory, it just blows my mind. This translation renders Shiloh to mean he to whom it belongs, or he for whom it is reserved. So let's read that verse again. We'll read something like this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until he comes to whom it belongs. The Lord is saying that the scepter belongs to his chosen offspring. And until the one who owns that scepter holds it in his hand, it shall not depart from Judah. In the line of Judah, there were going to be kings. Great kings and wicked kings. But that scepter wasn't going anywhere. And it wasn't going anywhere because God had decreed that it be reserved for the one whom he had ordained from before the creation of the world to be the one to wield it. The lion of the tribe of Judah. And this king, he will be the one that finally brings peace My heart just burns within me to read this. I hope it burns in yours. Time would fail me today if we were to continue on to King David and all the way through the Old Testament narrative. But I want you to begin to see this glorious pattern. All of Scripture leading up to Christ continues to draw us in closer and closer and closer to the aching question. Is this the one? Is this the one we have waited for? Is this the one who will redeem us from the curse of sin and death? Is he the promised seed of the woman who will bring us peace with God? Make no mistake, Christian. The Old Testament is no dry reed. Through all of redempted history... Leading up to Christ, men and women of faith have lived and died, looking forward to and longing with great anticipation for the promised offspring. As every prophecy inches us closer and closer to Jesus, you can just feel the anticipation mounting in the scriptures. I love what Jesus said in, in John chapter 8 to the Jews Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. Through the law and the prophets, the Lord would continue to reveal more and more about the coming offspring, that we would know him when he came. And the longing anticipation would just continue to pile up as God revealed wondrous things to give us to look forward to. We learn from the prophet Isaiah that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the promised Redeemer, God himself would come to be with us. The law of sin and death would be shattered and God would dwell with man in peace once again. Many of the songs that we sing during the Christmas season do well to capture the sense of longing that the scriptures reveal to us about the coming promised seed of the woman. We sang it today and I I didn't know we would be singing it today, but I'll just read a few verses just from my my all-time favorite Christmas song. Just listen to the longing in this. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. O come, thou rod of Jesse's stem, from every foe deliver them that trust thy mighty power to save and give them victory o'er the grave. O come, thou dayspring from on high and cheer us by thy drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. And then finally, after millennia of sin and death in darkness, those who longed for the coming of the Messiah would long no more. The time appointed for the fulfillment of the promises of God had come. And the prophecy of Micah chapter 5 was fulfilled one night. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, Who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me. One who is to be ruler in Israel. Whose coming forth is from of old. From ancient days. For behold. Said the angel to the shepherds that night. Fear not for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all peoples. For unto you is born this day in the city of david a savior who is christ the lord and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host this was too much for one angel praising god and saying glory to god in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased the king james here says he uses different manuscripts rendering glory to god in the highest and on earth peace Goodwill toward men. The promised seed of the woman had finally come. The one who would redeem man, woman, and child from the curse of sin was finally here. After thousands of years of waiting and generations of Old Testament saints longing by faith for his appearance, the promised one came. Emmanuel had come. Shiloh had come. He to whom belongs the scepter of Judah had come. He, through whom every nation on the earth would be blessed, had come. He, who would relieve us from our work and from our painful toil of our hands, had come. He, who would crush the head of that ancient serpent, had come. At long last, our peace has come into the world. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. The Lord Jesus Christ, who He Himself is our peace, has come. He's here. So truly, this is the most joyful event that the world has ever known. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared. Oh, but that serpent, he must bruise his heel. By the handiwork of the devil, the Messiah would be taken into the grave. Yet though the serpent labor with all his might, he was powerless to do anything but fulfill the word that the Lord God had spoken in the garden. All the suffering that Christ endured was the sovereign ordinance of the Father. For it was the will of the Lord to crush the seed of the woman, we are reminded in Isaiah 53. For he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The righteous wrath of God that is deserved by all people, for their sins was placed upon Jesus Christ. The penalty of the curse was paid for in full by the blood of the Son of God. But the grave could not hold him. And three days later, the seed of the woman sprang forth from the grave, and as he did, he crushed the head of that serpent. The power of sin was broken. The keys of death and Hades were taken from the serpent. The power of sin gone and this jesus having made purification for sin once for all sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high as a mighty conqueror and there he remains this day our great intercessor he himself is our peace by the new covenant of his blood we have passed from death into life our sins are forgiven we are told in john to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And as Romans 5.1 says, we'll come back to our text now. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. I have no better news for you this morning. We have peace with God. You, Christian, you who have come to Christ in faith, you have peace with your Maker. The peace of God through Jesus Christ is still offered freely to this day to all who come to Him in faith, to all who come to Him and confess their need for a Savior and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who takes away the sins of the world. He alone is the promised seed. He alone can crush the work of the serpent. He is the only name given under heaven. And as I said earlier, he's the only promise given to the human race by which we will be saved. If your faith is in Christ, then you have been born again. Not born again into the curse or the flesh of Adam, but born again into the life and the spirit of God. This is the peace that you have, Christian. God does not count your sins against you. He will never count them against you if you are in Christ. You deserved wrath, but instead you have been given the free gift of eternal life and adoption as children of the Most High. This peace with God is your greatest need. All of your pursuits at peace are worthless if you don't have peace with God. You are still living in the hopelessness of the curse of Adam. Every attempt that you make at peace in this life will be for nothing. So I say, woe to you who labor with great strife to preserve your mortal bodies while ignoring the Son of God. Woe to you who labor to surround yourself with ease and fine living, but you scorn the Lord's salvation. John Piper said, the most basic need we have is peace with God. This is foundational to all our pursuits of peace if we don't go here first, all other experiences of peace will be superficial and temporary. And one thing that amazes me about Christmas time is that so many broken families they gather together and for this one brief moment in the year try to sweep old hurts under the rug and try to manufacture with baubles and tinsel and whatever, just try to manufacture this tenuous sense of peace and harmony in their homes but it's artificial. It's fake. It won't satisfy. But the fact that we even try to manufacture this peace, I believe, reveals the presence of a deep longing in our hearts for genuine peace. The human heart knows its desperate need for a savior. Our consciences condemn us. We know that we can do nothing to atone for the wrong that we have done. The human heart knows its desperate need for the promised offspring of the woman. We can try to pretend there is peace without Christ, but as long as we remain under the curse of sin, there is no peace. Only darkness in this life, followed by judgment. But oh, the peace of God that we have in this life through Christ. What sweet fellowship we have, not only with God, but with one another. I love this church. To be able to live together in the sweet knowledge that our sins are forgiven, to enjoy the brotherhood that we have as we walk one another or walk with one another and in one heart we glorify our Father. With one heart. Now it would be be perhaps disingenuous to talk about the peace of God while ignoring an obvious fact. There's an elephant in the room, and one of the songs we sing about today makes mention of that. Because even though the Bible makes it utterly clear that Jesus Christ has all authority over all creation right now, and that he reigns over all things from heaven as we speak, we still look around this day, and we don't see the peace of Christ reigning in the world, do we? There is no peace on earth, I said, as the song song said. (laughs) When we look around at rampant sin and oppression in the world, it becomes very clear to us that the serpent is still at work. I told you that the head of the serpent has been crushed, yet we look around and clearly see the serpent's hand. And we see the offspring of the serpent living in enmity with the offspring of the woman, as the Lord told us in Genesis 3. And it's true. The serpent is still at work. The scriptures are clear that the serpent is still the prince of this world, He still prowls around like a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. He is still a liar and a murderer. He is still trying to lie and murder. He's trying to get people killed. And he's still trying to cause the saints to stumble. And we still see death. Though Christ has taken from the serpent the keys of death in Hades, our mortal bodies still perish. Though we have died to the law of sin and death and been made alive in Christ, as baptism shows, these mortal bodies will still die. So in some measure, the curse of Adam has not been fully done away with, has it? So while Christ has already defeated Satan and he has already defeated sin and death, these things are still at work. They have not been totally done away with for good. And because of this, There is something that we are still longing for. In the same way that the saints of old longed for the revealing of the Savior, we long for the Savior as well. But our longing now springs forth from a place of victory, having already received the peace with God through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.28 tells us that Christ Jesus, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you waiting for him today? One day we are promised Jesus will appear a second time, and he will make a full end to the work of the serpent and a full end to death. They will be cast into the lake of fire. And those who eagerly long for the revealing of Christ will be taken into his presence. And though the serpent still be at work, today he's been defanged. Satan had a single weapon against us, and it's been taken from him. The only weapon that he had was the rightful accusation against sinners before God. But if we are in Christ, he doesn't have that anymore. He has no accusation against those who are in Christ. And though our bodies perish, death has no sting. For we who are in Christ have no fear to stand at the judgment. For the Lord shall make us stand. So just as the saints of old longed for the first coming of Christ, we now long for the second. But our longing is different. By faith we have taken hold of the promised peace of God that was revealed in Christ Jesus. And we walk in the power and the comfort of the promised Holy Spirit that is the down payment and guarantee of our full inheritance in Christ that will be revealed, and we who are in Christ shall dwell with him forever, and then then we will fully know the peace of God, and we can walk in that confidence this morning so Christian, I invite you today by the or I invite you today to glory in the peace that you possess. In Christ Jesus, the peace that surpasses all understanding. And with the saints of old, let us glory together in his appearing this Christmas. The Apostle Paul said in Second Timothy 4, 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So let us be people who love his appearing. May the peace of Christ rule in our hearts to which indeed we were called in one body and may we with unveiled eyes joyfully look forward to the final coming of Christ and the glory that is to be revealed. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you who promised the offspring, Lord. You who...